Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Quick headlines out of the way. Uh, we will circle back to them. Uh, just want to bring you up to date. The president uh, has decided we will stay in Syria after all, having withdrawn troops from that 25-mile strip all along the Turkish border. The president has now decided we will keep a, f- a number of troops, several dozen up to 200 in uh, Syria and uh, the bordering areas of Iraq to guard oil fields uh, to keep them from ISIS. Now, an acknowledgement that ISIS is regrouping, having escaped um, with the Kurds being killed and slaughtered and and moved down to make an alliance with Basra al-Assad. Video has come out of American soldiers withdrawing from parts of Syria and uh, the Kurds throwing rocks at them, uh, angry with them for leaving, feeling betrayed. The president has also reversed course on the Doral uh, Trump golf course hosting the G7. Uh, The New York Times has a story out this morning. Uh, I have confirmed with several Republicans that the the basic lay of the land of what this New York Times story this morning is saying is true. Uh, the president knew he was inviting criticism by choosing his own golf club in Miami for the site of a gathering of world leaders in June. President Trump told his aides opposed to the choice he was prepared for the inevitable attack from Democrats. What he was not prepared for was the reaction of fellow Republicans who said his choice of the club, the Trump National Doral, had crossed a line and they couldn't defend it. So Mr. Trump did something that might not have been a surprise for a president facing impeachment but was unusual for him. He reversed himself Saturday night, abruptly ending the uproar, touched off two days earlier by the announcement of his decision. Um, Yep, walking it back, probably, frankly, a smart thing for him. Uh, Here's Chris Christie from uh, ABC News, George Stephanopoulos' show. I doubt it was an attempt to get ahead of information. Um, I think it it was a mistake. Uh, And, you know, where it came from and and how the chief of staff decided to do that, I think you saw pretty clearly that the the, uh, secretary of state was expressing the same type of concerns that I understand White House lawyers were expressing about the press conference. So I don't think it was some grand plan. And and what I'd also say is that, you know, I've said this to the president as recently as this week. We have to be in friend-making mode. Okay, We have to be exactly what Sarah said is exactly right. Um, There's a time to be combative. Um, and there's a time to be in friend-making mode vis-a-vis your own party. And, and right now, when you're facing an impeachment, which, by the way, is predetermined, as I've said House. before. House. Impeachment. Impeachment, not removal. All right? So impeachment is predetermined. They're going to do it. And he should be tumbled to the fact that that's going to happen. And then he's not going to be removed. And then we're going to move to a presidential campaign. The best part of the president's whole week was what you started off with which was the more people in this country see Democrats on this campaign stage, Elizabeth Warren, I'd be unable to answer questions. When it's a binary choice, if we talked about dozens of times here, it's much better for the president when the spotlight's only on him. Yeah, when the spotlight's on him and he's got to be in friend-making mode. Uh, Chris Christie right there. Uh, There's some data we'll get to later. Polling out from multiple states showing Republicans may actually lose the Senate uh, if the election were held today. Luckily, the election's not going to be held today for him, but he's right. The president's got to be in friend-making mode. This really angered Republicans that he was going to send it to Doral for a number of reasons, uh, one of which is uh, the Doral golf course is super, super nice, but several friends of mine who have played there in the last couple of years have 
said even after remodeling of the course, uh, the the clubhouse and facilities aren't great uh, compared to what we normally do for the G7. Remember, George W. Bush took them to Sea Island, uh, down to the Cloisters. They had the big resort there. In fact, I stayed. Which one was it? Um, the Japanese Prime Minister. I, I did an event. I got asked to speak at Sea Island, and um, I oh, what was it? Um, I can't remember it. It's it's doesn't really matter, but it was towards the end of the or middle of the Obama administration years, and there was a plaque in the room that the Japanese prime minister had stayed in the room. I was saying, and it was a super nice room. It, I had never been to the to Sea Island before. I, too rich for my blood, but it was nice. Uh, it was really nice. Uh, so this is all walked back now. Um, okay, uh, the phone number again, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. There's a story, it's an, it's an AP story, and it's not getting the traction that I think it should get, particularly after all the, the uh, Republican statements on the deep state. Uh, there's some evidence for them today. And just so you know, I'm not a deep state conspiracy theorist. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there are concerns, and this Associated Press report is raising them. Three years of simmering frustration inside the State Department is boiling over on Capitol Hill as a parade of current and former diplomats testify to their concerns about the Trump administration's unorthodox policy toward Ukraine. Over White House objections, the diplomats are appearing before impeachment investigators looking into President Donald Trump's dealings with Ukraine, and they're recounting stories of possible impropriety, misconduct, and mistreatment by their superiors. To Trump and his allies, the diplomats are evidence of a deep state within the government that has been out to get him from the start. But to the employees of a department demoralized by the administration's repeated attempts to slash its budget and staff, cooperating with the inquiry is seen as a moment of catharsis, an opportunity to reassert the foreign policy norms they believe Trump has blown past. I'm going to skip a little bit. Um, the State Department officials parading through Capitol Hill include high-ranking diplomats with decades of experiences serving Republicans and Democrats, among them Kurt Volker. Uh, others who have testified include, include Marie Yovanovitch, the former ambassador to Ukraine, Michael McKinley, uh, who resigned uh, in the Foreign Service over treatment of, McK of Yovanovitch, Fiona Hill, a National Security Council staffer, um, and on and on it goes. Okay, uh, let me just say, I think that this is gives the president some, some ammunition that part of what is happening with impeachment is, in fact, that uh, bureaucrats are out to get him, Democrat-leaning bureaucrats. In fact, many of these people, I, I think, do lean to the left. In Gibbon's uh, History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, I believe that was, that was it. One of the things that he noted was that a lot of people in the Roman Empire could go by in their daily existence without really noticing for a time uh, the crumbling empire around them and, and the problems with the empire uh, because the Roman bureaucracy continued to operate even as the Roman emperors were floundering about. Uh, the Roman bureaucrats were able to collect the taxes. They were able to get the roads paved. They were able to build the aqueducts. They were able to keep the water flowing. They were able to keep the grain coming in. They were able to keep the bread being made. They were able to keep the slaves managed. They were able to do all of these things. Uh, even as the Roman emperor and the Praetorian guard were killing each other and fighting each other and the Gauls were coming in and there were fights. Uh, and, and, you know, it was Gibbon actually blamed Christianity for the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, Gibbon was hostile 
hostile to the church to, to begin with, but but his, his premise actually does make a little sense. One of the things that, that yeah, I realize it is it is 9.15 in the morning and I'm already at the decline and fall of the Roman Empire and, and the role of the church. <laughs> we go deep here on occasion, ladies and gentlemen. Um, one of the things that Gibbon noted was that um, as the church sprang up in the Roman Empire, after Constantine, the, the empire becomes Christian and a lot of people start gravitating towards Christian ideas and a lot of the best educated people in Rome the goal used to be to go into the bureaucracy and serve the empire well here comes this religion that says uh, there are essentially two kingdoms as articulated by Augustine uh, and one is eternal and one is temporal one is temporary one lasts forever one has a, an emperor who floats in and out. The other has an eternal God who created all mankind, raised us up from the dust of the earth, and stitched us together in our mother's wombs. Who do you want to serve? The guy who's probably going to be killed by his guards in another couple of weeks? Or the, the king who lasts forever? And so a lot of the Roman Empire and, and the, the higher echelons of society, Christianity really at first was, uh, it started as a slave religion when Augusta, or when Constantine became emperor, it was the upper classes all converted because they needed access to the emperor, and it was the, the poorer people in the fields who took some time for them to convert uh, outside of the Rome areas, um, and... As the upper echelon families began to convert, their kids started digging into the ideas that were enamored with them, and instead of going into the bureaucracy, they went into the church. And the church became a new power structure as well, and that caused the bureaucracy to wind down. So Gibbons uh, attributes all this stuff and says that the church was one reason the empire collapsed. Now, if you're a one of those 50,000 foot um, people who looks down and says, well, the the Roman Empire had to exist for Christ to be born with the paved roads and everything to be able to spread his message around. And then the Roman Empire was no longer needed. Uh, and the Roman Empire was an impediment to the spread of the church. And so it collapsed. Uh, however you look at it, Gibbon's point was that for the longest time, even as there was turmoil within the political power structure of the Roman Empire, the bureaucracy could sustain the empire and your average Roman citizen perhaps did not necessarily recognize the fact that the empire was on the decline. Uh, in the American situation, the American Republic, I know I'm not one of those people who's going to go American empire route on you. Uh, in the American Republic where we stand right now, you have for the longest time had a bureaucracy that kind of sustained itself. And we're in this situation where the bureaucracy looks to be going to war against the current president of the United States. Why is very important. You need to understand this. If you will recall during the Bush administration, there were instances where the intelligence apparatus appeared to be leaking against the Bush administration. In fact, there are a lot of people in Republican circles, particularly in Republican governmental circles, who look at uh, the intelligence bureaucracy and think it's, it's a bunch of academic liberals these days and needs to be reformed. And I suspect they're right. And what the, the intelligence community is signaling with Donald Trump as well is that they're kind of out to get him, too, just as they were to get George W. Bush. Um, but for different reasons. With Bush, the intelligence community thought that Bush was kind of throwing them under the bus after the weapons with mass destruction in Iraq were not found. 
with Trump, what it is, it's the Foreign Service community and the intelligence community. They're out to get Donald Trump because Donald Trump is overturning historic norms. Now, the left looks at this, and frankly, parts of the Republican establishment look at this as well, and they think it's a good thing that the bureaucracy as a rudder fixed and headed in certain locations, and it, it between Republicans and Democrats, it can turn in different directions, but turn slowly. Donald Trump came aboard uh, the ship of state and decided to do an abrupt hard turn. And essentially you've had diplomats and people in the intelligence community sabotaging the rudder so that he can't make the full turn. And the reason they're doing this, I, I'm not going to posit that they're, they're bad people. I am one who believes that the president, I believe in the unitary executive, the, the article two is about the president. It's not about the bureaucracy. Everything is subservient to him. I, I think if I could do something different, if I were president, I would get rid of the civil service act and allow the president to hire and fire every single employee down to the route man on the post office route. Uh, he should be able to hire and fire at will. He's the president. It all flows underneath him. That being said, it is the view of bureaucrats who are trained, whether you go through the civil service, whether you go through the foreign services game, what have you, um, that there are variants of American foreign policy. And as long as you stay within those variants of American policy, you can maintain some level of stability in the world, even among administrations that disagree with each other. But a wholesale upending of American foreign policy, changing completely the direction of the country, is something that would create too much acrimony and too much instability in the world. you got to remember that, that the foreign policy community is built on the idea of, of a continuation of a policy leads to stability, even if the policy itself is nuts. And, and that's where the foreign policy bureaucracy is. They see President Trump coming in and completely disrupting American foreign policy, and their goal is is to slow it down as much as they can. They know they can't completely slow it down because at the end of the day, it's the president and his secretary of state who he can fire at will with impunity who makes the ultimate goals. But as it trickles down through the bureaucracy, the bureaucracy can slowly turn the steering wheel and keep the rudder almost where it was. There's a level of institutional inertia that keeps directions flowing. Uh, only in certain uh, extreme cases does it turn abruptly, like what we saw after 9-11. Uh, one of the reasons for 9-11 was because uh, the, the bureaucracy wasn't flexible enough to deal with the changing world. And it, unfortunately, the solution the government came up with was to create the Department of Homeland Security, which is just a massive amalgamation of bureaucracies that probably we will ultimately learn had the same problem as beforehand. That, but these these bureaucrats are now providing the president ammunition uh, in his claim of a coup because they are really out to get him. And it's very clear they're out to get him. They're, they're very upset with him. And primarily they are upset with him not because of what he did per se. Most of them weren't on the phone call. They're upset because the president is undermining bipartisan consensus on foreign policy. And essentially, they're looking at him saying uh, a, a minority of Americans elected this guy. He only got elected through the, through the Electoral College. We're going to resist from within. And that that's not the way our system is supposed to work. If you don't like the president, you resign. You don't try to obstruct him from within. 
and uh, the media is painting these people out to be heroes, and it just gives a reinforced feedback loop to Republican supporters of the president that these people really are out to get him, and the bureaucracy itself really is illegitimate, and there really is a coup afoot. And that could be deeply persuasive with Republican senators in Republican states who already don't like the foreign policy bureaucracy. That could be a gift that keeps on giving for the president, that these people are being so adamant about it and defiant of him, even though technically they're employees of the executive branch. You know, let me just plug that for you. I do send out a daily email uh, around 6 o'clock in the morning, and it contains some of the stuff uh, that I'm going to be talking about on the show, thoughts on other topics that don't make it in the show, uh, lots of useful information. If you're a conservative and you want to know what the news is, you should be paying attention to. It's an email I've been sending out, gosh, since 2007, 2008. Uh, Changed it up a little bit in form over time, but uh, if you want to subscribe to it, text the word show to 33777 text the word show to 33777 uh, and that will get you on the list you'll get a text back asking for your email address and that'll get you subscribed I, it goes out every weekday morning at 6 a.m um yeah. this story i read this this morning so it's still foggy outside i'm looking out the window right now and it's it's still foggy i i don't know where you are in the state uh, but in the mid-state, we are covered in fog this morning. I had to get up this morning and take our laundry, our the, the drain motor on our washing machine burned up. It was awful smell. Uh, and I had to take it over to the laundromat this morning and let them do the wash-dry fold. I, I, the funniest part is I got in there, and the guy asked if I needed the stuff back today. I said, oh, no, 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 we, we are... are um, Drain pump on the washing machine burned up. We're we're in no rush. Um, we've got enough clean clothes to get us through the next few days. The guy laughed. He said, "Well, we're short. We're short of washing machine because our drain pump burned up." <laughs> It's a small world. Um, but anyway, uh, got out. It was it was super, super foggy this morning. And I went over waiting for that place to open and went to Panera. I swear Panera Bread spikes caffeine in their coffee. I'm just, I'm here like I've had three espressos. Uh, my hands are shaky. I've had so much caffeine. I only had two cups of coffee this morning. Um, it, it, but I, I saw this story and I couldn't believe it at first. Uh, the, the Seattle School District. In Seattle, Washington, is planning to infuse all K through 12 math classes with ethnic studies questions that encourage students to explore how math has been appropriated by Western culture and used in systems of power and oppression. A controversial move that puts the district at the forefront of a movement to rehumanize math. The framework outlines stands of discussion the teachers should incorporate into their classes. One leads students into exploring math's roots in the ancient histories of people and empires of color. Another asks how math and science have been used to oppress and marginalize people of color and who holds power in a math classroom. <laughs> so basically... Two plus two equals four, unless your teacher is white, and then don't you let that teacher tell you what's right. <laughs> Seattle's proposals uh, land as schools all over the country are discussing ethnic studies. Now, it gets better. It gets better. Um, 
So th- this is from the the National Council of Teachers in Mathematics. Th- this is a a um, standard here. What's so funny is that the white folks on the Board of Education at Seattle are making the people who came up with this really mad. Because the the good white liberals in Seattle want this to all be fixated on oppression. And actually, the uh, people who came up with it said, no, we just want kids to understand this wasn't a Roman Empire concept. The Babylonians and the Aztecs, they use math too. So you should point that out and not just focus on the Roman Empire. Um, But nope, the white liberals in Seattle want to make you know that minorities were oppressed way back when. Oh, good grief. Hello there. I, y'all, I'm, I'm still chuckling about the story. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you would like to call in, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Hope you guys had a great weekend. Um, I just, I'm, I'm, this is, before we went to break, if you're just tuning in, um, it, the Seattle School District wants to teach kids math but also incorporate how math has been used to oppress people, non-white people, um, if, o- over the years. Um, a theme that the students are supposed to learn is uh, resistance and liberation, encouraging students to recognize the mathematical practices and contributions of their own communities and looking at how math has been used to free people from oppression in addition to uh, showing in math and science how they have been used to oppress and marginalize people with color and who holds power in the classroom. (laughs) Students or teachers would be expected to corp, co- incorporate those ideas and questions into the math they teach beginning next fall. Groups of teachers are working with representatives of local community organizations to write instructional units. Seattle is at the forefront of this, uh, says Robert Berry, the president of the National Council of Teachers in Mathematics. What they're doing follows the line of work we hope we can move forward as we think about the history of math and who contributes to it and the deepening students' connection with the agencies. But, 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 um, some people say they're getting it all wrong. Um, and part of the reason they're getting it all wrong is because ethnomathematics, that's what they're calling it, ethnomathematics. It's uh, originated in the late 70s by a Brazilian math professor. And most recently, um, Rochelle Gutierrez at the University of Illinois Champaign or Urbana Champaign has been advocating rehumanizing mathematics. Holy moly! Um, and but uh, people behind closed doors are pointing out that they get it all wrong. A a top official at one math organization only wanted to speak anonymously to avoid any blowback and said, we all want students of color to be included, believe that they can learn math and see themselves as mathematicians. It's important for them to learn about the great contributions to mathematics from all cultures, Indian and Chinese and Babylonian. But you don't need to talk about liberation and oppression and how Western mathematics has somehow taken over. It just turns people off and makes the goal of being inclusive that much tougher. What? What? Wow. 
Oh, and look, uh, one of the academics suggests that they do lessons in gerrymandering to show how mathematics is used to divide people. Oh, good grief. Um, so much of, of Western civilization is crumbling now on, on the ideas of, of cultural oppression and liberation and um, just just it, it's nonsensical to see this stuff happening. But, you know, I mean, it, it spreads over into society at large uh, with, with everything. I mean, it, look at the 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 problems that the Democrats are having right now with, with wokeness. You got Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez out there on the campaign trail just uh, saying some, some utterly ridiculous things. And how we're going to do it is with a mass mobilization of working class people at the ballot box. That's the only way that we are going to win this thing. Because our number, one of our top priorities is not just defeating Donald Trump, but defeating the the systems of which he is a symptom. is organize a fundamentally positive and welcoming movement. One that is mindful, not only mindful, of the ugly histories that created our present inequalities. The racism of housing segregation. The classism of the Hyde Amendment that tells us that low-income women shouldn't have access to health care. the imperialist and colonial histories that contribute to our endless wars and our immigration crisis. Wow. Yep. The, the endless wars. By the way, there's a... Um a professor at Rutgers, Samantha Kelly, uh, was asked a question. Uh, if you could go back in time and change one thing, what would it be? Let me read you her actual words. The invention of agriculture. Again, wait, 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 wait. Just just so you, you fully grasp all of this. If you could go back in time and change one thing, what would it be? Samantha Kelly, history professor at Rutgers, says uh, one thing she would change is the invention of agriculture. Imagine far less environmental degradation and income inequality, a shorter workday for all, a varied diet and possibly better health outcomes for certain communities, and a profound confidence that the future would provide. A world without industrial agriculture would pretty much be the Eden of the Bible. Hunter-gatherer life isn't sounding so bad. Hunter-gatherer life wouldn't sound so bad. Uh, We would have the Eden of the Bible, according to this professor. Holy moly. Uh, You know, um, if you want the Eden of the Bible, here's what God says, Genesis 1.26, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild things. And God created man in his image and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. 
Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature. I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground. Everything that has breath and life in it, I give every green plant for food. This, wow, there you go. Um, yeah, that wouldn't be Eden, lady. Uh, in Eden, they tended the garden. Um, this is, professors are losing their mind in all this. And it's, it's, it's polluting the brains of, of 20-somethings like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who say the most absurd things. There's another professor out there. I, I did not bookmark this tweet, but over the weekend, uh, a different history professor uh, argued that we would be better off if we lived a medieval existence. That the house size would probably be larger. Uh, the work would be less. The food would be more nutritious. That's not true. You, you do understand that's not true. Now, the, the housing it, it arguably is the exception because so many people in urban areas live in such tiny apartments now. That may be the one true thing. Um, but disease, birth rates, life expectancy, by, by every measure, uh, medieval man. Oh, and also you're living a, a surf existence. You're beholden to some Lord. Uh, you, you're not tending your fields. You're tending the fields of someone else. It, it just, it's bizarre that we're at this, this anti factual life where even professors are saying just absurd stuff. Uh, it, it is a collapse of truth. It is a post truth society. Uh, that we are living in, and it is one in which Democrats are running for office in a post-truth society, themselves making no no sense out there. Elizabeth Warren has all sorts of problems out there. We'll get to. But, you know, speaking of a, a, a post-truth society, you've got Hillary Clinton out there now attacking Tulsi Gabbard as an agent of the, of the Russians. It really is a bizarre uh, situation here where the Clintons have decided to rear their head, and by the way, you should know, uh, suddenly putting uh, the Democrats on defensive about Tulsi Gabbard and the Democrats, elevating Tulsi Gabbard's profile. On a late Friday, Clinton accused Gabbard, the congresswoman from Hawaii, of being an agent of the Russians. Now, Tulsi Gabbard, you should know, is very sympathetic to the Assad regime in Syria, among others, there are a lot of people wondering what on earth this woman, where this woman's getting her views. She was in the military, though. She's got a distinguished record, and she's Hillary Clinton's not helping herself. She's also out there complaining about systematic sexism and how it affected her. You would think she would have learned about systematic sexism from her husband. I have to confess, I was surprised by the level of sexism, and a lot of it, people literally could have passed a lie detector test. Do you think what you just said was sexist? No, of course not, because it's so deeply embedded in the, categoriz the categorizations that we use when we think about women in public spaces. Uh, and so people are often not even aware of their implicit bias. That's true for race and ethnicity and lots of other things as well. And then you just begin to see that so many of the attitudes that were expressed toward me are being expressed you know, toward women running uh, for all kinds of offices. So there's a learning process here, and 
I hope that uh, we're more willing to stand up against it, to speak out against it, to call people out about it. Uh, that's true in the media as well, because they have their own uh, categories and their own implicit biases. So it, it, I guess it takes guts to do it and to keep going, but it should be a, a lesson that it, it shouldn't be this hard for women to be in the public arena. Uh, what she lost, and it, it's hard for women to be in the public arena. It, it, Nikki Haley, an Indian American woman, got her elected in South Carolina. Was it hard? Susanna Martinez uh, got elected in New Mexico. Why is it only hard for Democratic women? Uh, Republican women aren't out there screaming about sexism all the time and they're getting elected, yet Hillary Clinton loses and suddenly it's all about sexism as opposed to all about. Nobody likes her. And then this this weird Gabbard stuff as well, accusing her of being a Russian agent. By the way, uh, Democrats and the media pushing back very hard on this because they're afraid that it helps Gabbard to have Clinton go after her. Look, whether you're a fan of Tulsi Gabbard or not, there is zero evidence that she is some Russian plant. And I think it just makes the whole Russian conspiracy thing look absurd, that it's gone this far, that you would, as Hillary Clinton, a major figure in the Democratic establishment to this day baselessly smear an American veteran who served in the Iraq War as a medic and still serves in the Hawaii Army National Guard as a being groomed by Vladimir Putin. I mean, that's disgusting and absurd. Yeah, that's commentary on MSNBC, of all things, and now commentary on Meet the Press. I'm going to move to the bizarre Hillary Clinton attack, uh, Betsy, on on um, Tulsi Gabbard. First, I want folks to hear it. I think they've got their eye on somebody who's currently in the Democratic <laughs> primary mm -hmm. and are grooming her to be the third party candidate. Mm -hmm. She's a favorite of the Russians and that's assuming Jill Stein will give it up, which she might not because she's also a Russian right. uh, asset. Also a Russian asset. Tulsi Gabbard responded, Betsy, you, the queen of warmongers, embodiment of corruption, personification of the rot that has sickened the Democratic Party for so long. It's now clear that this primary is between you and me. Don't cowardly hide behind your proxies during the race directly. Tulsi Gabbard is on the verge of sort of not making it into the next debate. But Hillary Clinton just gave her a lifeline. Look, either Hillary Clinton has some very explosive information that none of the rest of the public has access to, or she floated a conspiracy theory about Tulsi Gabbard, claiming that someone who deployed twice, who joined the military, is covertly being groomed by the Russian government. That's a conspiracy theory, and there's not public evidence for it. And of course, it's understandable that Gabbard would respond with immense anger. Now, to be fair, Gabbard saying that Clinton was using her proxies in the corporate media to yeah. conspire to keep her from being a successful candidate also was like come on but this this particular episode was joshua criticize her for hanging out with bashar al-assad that's a fact yeah. none of this other stuff is are, are, are fact-based not fact-based and also i'm just not sure that it like you said, I'm not sure it's going to make a difference at the end of the day. If she had said this about Elizabeth Warren, yeah. totally different story. But Tulsi Gabbard's, the center of gravity around her is not that strong. So in the end, this might not move the needle. Yeah, it might, except as Chuck Todd, I think, accurately pointed out there in the Meet the Press panel that she's on the verge of not qualifying for the debate. That'll actually be here in Georgia. 
They haven't set a location yet, but I would suspect it's going to be the North Metro Atlanta area and the suburbs, a place the Democrats want to win. Uh, It's a messaging opportunity for the Democrats. And and Gabbard hasn't met all the qualifications to get into the debate. And suddenly to have Hillary Clinton go on the warpath against her, she elevates uh, Tulsi Gabbard's profile by what she said and could now get Tulsi Gabbard into a debate she otherwise wouldn't be in. And no, I don't think there's some sort of deep conspiracy oh, this is Clinton and Gabbard working together to get Gabbard in the debate. No, I don't think that's it at all. I I think that Clinton just said this stuff and it's bizarre. She says weird things and and crazy things all the time these days. Uh, She also tweeted out a fake letter of uh, supposedly from John F. Kennedy to Khrushchev. It was modeled on the Donald Trump one. It was from one of the, the late night shows, came up with it. And Hillary Clinton tweeted out and said, found this in the archives. It's just... Man, Grandma, um, we're starting to realize is losing her mind. Some of us knew all along. Um, But you know, the crazy thing is that you've got other Democrats who say crazy stuff all the time, and the media really gives them a pass. And now, Deep Thoughts by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And this idea that if we just... You know, I've been working on this for X amount of years. It's like not good enough. Like we need a universal sense of urgency and people are trying to like introduce watered down proposals that are frankly going to kill us. That was Deep Thoughts by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. When we get back at the top of the hour, um, medical marijuana is advancing in Georgia, and yet it's got some problems, and and the advance of medical marijuana in Georgia has ground to a halt. I will bring you the details. Uh, Right now, though, the Justice Department is distancing itself from Rudy Giuliani. So... I don't think if, if you're not a lawyer and you haven't dealt with this situation, you probably don't realize how firewalled aspects of the Justice Department are. Um, the reason is because they don't loose lips sink ships and loose lips can tip off people that are under investigation and whatnot that you don't want. So we had the federal prosecutors who indicted the two men, now four people. Uh, who were setting up the marijuana shop in Las Vegas. They reached out to and befriended Rudy Giuliani. They've been feeding him information out of Ukraine. Um, They did not realize, people at the Justice Department did not realize that Giuliani had ties to those individuals. On top of that, uh, they did not realize that a federal prosecutor in New York was going to indict some of Giuliani's clients. Giuliani had been reached, reaching out to people in the upper echelons of the Justice Department trying to get these men um, out of an investigation. Well, the upper echelons of the Justice Department keep themselves out of prosecutorial decisions at the local level. They don't want to be accused of gaming the system. They try to avoid those discussions with federal prosecutors, unless it's a really big case. If it's a really big case, your U.S. attorney in... in Atlanta or Macon or or wherever in the in the Southern District, I guess it's in Brunswick or Savannah, uh, we'll reach out to the DOJ and say, hey, I got this case. It's going to make a lot of news. You need to know about it. Uh, but typically, they don't have that communication. For example, a, um, BJ Pack here in Atlanta, uh, in the Atlanta area, he indicted the secretary uh, or the, the insurance commissioner in Georgia, Jim Beck. 
And he did not reach out to the federal government and just say, hey, everybody, I just want you all to know I'm going to indict the sitting elected insurance commissioner. He didn't he doesn't do that. Uh, They don't do that because you don't want to you don't want that information to leak out. You don't want it to get to political appointees who, who engage in some sort of damage control. You just let him do it. So the Justice Department had no idea that uh, Giuliani's friends were going to be indicted, the people that Giuliani was talking to the Justice Department about. And Giuliani apparently didn't let slip to them that there was this ongoing investigation and grand jury investigation into these individuals. So the Justice Department, I, I don't recall the last time this happened. And I was looking in several several press reports and in a lot of the experts who were quoted said they can't remember the last time the Justice Department did something like this. Uh, the Justice Department essentially released a statement saying, we got nothing to do with Rudy. We don't want to talk to Rudy. We don't want Rudy anywhere near us. Stay away from us, Rudy. <laughs> I just, Rudy, I, I, he is the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, for the Democrats in this, I, I and now pictures have come out. Um, so, you know, I was in the news this weekend, totally accidentally. Um, I, I started getting text messages from people about Mitt Romney and me, and I had no idea. Turns out Mitt Romney had a secret Twitter account, uh, Pierre Delicto, which probably comes from Perry Delicto, which means both parties are at fault. Uh, Pierre Delicto was his nickname and he followed me on Twitter and has retweeted me a couple times, replied to me, called me wrong on something at one point, commended me on some other things. And here I was accidentally in the, I had no idea. It was a random Twitter account. As far as I was concerned, I didn't follow it. Um, and the media buzzing about this and this Rudy Giuliani stuff, just bizarre. Um, the gifts that keep on giving for the media when we come back. Medical marijuana in Georgia is facing a little bit of a setback, and Georgia Power getting some news from regulators they're not happy with, probably, uh, on rate increases. Your rate is going to go up, though, and I've got the details. I'm coming. I'm coming. Welcome. <laughs> not the way to start the second hour of the show. Sorry. I, man, it's that time of year, and after all the rain and stuff, you would think it would go away, but every once in a while, I get these these... The, you know, the little ants that come in when it's super dry outside, uh, they've been in my office and they all went away. And then suddenly I, I felt something crawling on my leg and it was one of those ants. And, you know, it, it's like if you mention lice or something, every all parts of your body start itching afterwards. So, <laughs> sorry, way too much information. Welcome. <laughs> it's Eric Erickson here. Uh, the full, all of you are itching right now, now scratching. Uh, the full number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, the tropical storm or the remnants of the tropical storm this weekend, uh, at least turning the grass green again in parts of the state, a good light rain, heavy rain in parts. It was heavy at times. Our kids soccer game got canceled on Saturday morning, which was nice. We all got to sleep in um, lots of the state getting, getting rain. Well, uh, crops are getting rain. One of the crops that's getting rain is hemp, uh, in Georgia, Watkinsville, uh, Georgia's future hemp crop begins according to the AJC. It is a pungent field at the university of Georgia where several dozen cannabis plants are nearly ready for harvest. The plants are lined in rows on one third of an acre, sprouting fuzzy flowers that could be processed into CBD oil. The popular product sold every it's sold at the gas station just as as a random aside here. 
Uh, I've got a Flash Foods gas station right up the street from me. It uh, has a Dairy Queen in it. Uh, it's right next to Taco Bell, and there are signs all over the parking lot. You know the little signs, like campaign signs you put down? It's CBD sold here. You can get it everywhere, and it's so unregulated, you have no idea uh, exactly just uh, whether the quality is good or not. And in fact, I've had several people tell me that in some cases it's so unrefined, and some, sometimes you get more THC than CBD, and, and it's not regulated. The police can come in, and they don't really have a test right now for this stuff. So people are essentially selling THC, that's the ingredient that gets you high, as opposed to the CBD. Uh Tim Kulong, who's a university horticulturalist at UGA, is growing the hemp plants, the cannabis plants, in preparation for farmers to stop start growing hemp across the state. Lawmakers voted to legalize it, and all CBD oil products in Georgia are now imported, which is one of the reasons they want to start growing this. Um, UGA, the University of Georgia, is researching how well hemp grows, its yield per acre, and which varieties prosper in Georgia's hot and humid climate. You would think they could go into any dorm at UGA and ask the students who were growing the pot in their dorm rooms. <laughs> yeah, my wife just texted me. She's, yes. Uh, the, so, okay. I am not making this up. I think I've mentioned this here. So this Flash Foods up the street from us that has the Dairy Queen built in, uh, it has signs all over the the uh, the right of way advertising that CBD oil is sold in the Flash Foods. But if you go through the drive through at the Dairy Queen, all of the employees sit out back and smoke weed. I mean, they're 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 you're there at the drive through placing your order, and the employees are getting baked before going inside and cooking your food. And the orders are constantly wrong as a result. In fact, uh, when was it? Two weeks ago, I went through there and the drive-thru was closed. They had a sign up saying you had to come inside to take orders. And I had to drive around past the back door and all of the employees were sitting back there. You could smell the marijuana. I mean, and they were all, I mean, every single one of them, it was like five dudes back there smoking, three three to five. Uh, and then you went inside, and there was one woman at the cash register who looked very frazzled. And these guys, she's going back yelling at the guys to come inside, and they don't even know what they're doing. They were so baked out of their mind. Uh, <laughs> and they could just go next door and get the CBD oil, but nope, they, they wanted to smoke it instead. In any event, uh, Georgia farmers uh, look like they're going to jump on the hemp business. 35 states are already growing commercial hemp. Georgia's positioning itself to become a significant producer. Like marijuana, hemp comes from cannabis, but contains little to no THC. State inspectors will test hemp to ensure it contains less than three-tenths of a percent THC. Uh, so this professor at UGA has grown 24 varieties in Watkinsville near Athens, in Blairsville, and in Tifton. The plants were harvested a few weeks ago. A second crop is going. Some grow nine feet tall. Some barely get off the ground. Hemp is probably going to grow well in Georgia, but it seems to prosper in North Georgia. <laughs> It's where all the illegal marijuana is grown, too, up in the North Georgia mountains. Go down a dirt road and suddenly you see a bunch of people telling you to turn around and go back. Makes you wonder what they're growing. <laughs> okay, but there is a problem. There, there is a problem. Um, the problem is that the medical marijuana program uh, is dead in its tracks. Uh, 
and that's also related to CBD and the regulations and coming up with the testing. So the governor signed the legislation to appoint a commission uh, that would oversee the expansion of medical marijuana in the state, draft regulations, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, except... No members have been put on the Georgia Access to Medical Cannabis Commission. Until they're put on the commission, the expansion is sidelined. The legislation gives the seven-member commission vast oversight over the state's medical marijuana operation. Includes picking which businesses can grow the plant, developing the licensing requirements the retailers must meet, It's a cornerstone of legislation that creates new but limited marijuana industry in Georgia. The legislation would celebrate um, giving patients access here in Georgia to medical marijuana instead of having to bring it in from out of state. One potential cause is that the commission is kind of a startup. So there are no built-in procedures and there are no existing members. Uh, but there have been over 50 candidates to apply. The law is meant to set strict requirements for appointment, including a rule that commission members must not have any ownership stake or financial interest in a cannabis oil firm during their term and five years after it ends. Still, the delay is a setback for patients who are still having to go out of state. So you've got that. You've got the hemp industry here now ready to explode in the state. Georgia's on the on the verge of something. And now you've got also local prosecutors in the state essentially uh, ceasing the enforcement of, uh, of marijuana criminalization laws. You've got some cities in the state now that are decriminalizing it where you may get a $75 fine and confiscation and otherwise sit on your way as a, as a misdemeanor. In some cases, the police are more and more turning a blind eye. In fact, I was talking to a buddy of mine who's a police officer. Well, I'm, I don't want to tell you uh, in what city he's in, but he's in the metro Atlanta area. And he said it's becoming so common now to find teenagers and counter teenagers who are smoking marijuana that uh, more often than not, the the police officers will confiscate it from them if they're seated and send them on their way. They don't even document it. Uh, it's not worth their time. It's happening so much. Uh, they're just forfeiting uh, their marijuana and sending them on their way. It, we have essentially reached de facto uh, recreational marijuana legalization in parts of the metro Atlanta area in the state. And I suspect it's going to increase around the state. Some uh, areas are still taking very hard lines, but in the metro Atlanta area, depending on the city you're in, uh, less so. Uh, Clarkston is one. I think Lilburn is another. Um, um, Conyers is another. Out in Paulding County, there are some. Uh, and and then in the uh, Decatur area, too, there's just uh, more and more growing acceptance by the uh, by the police that this is something people are doing now you know part of the problem here is that there's actually a lot of research that shows that uh, marijuana affects brain development and that teenage brains do not develop until their mid-20s, like fully form, uh, and marijuana can impact that. There is increasing evidence, uh, The Atlantic and other magazines, The Atlantic of all places, uh, ran a story, gosh, seven, eight months ago on this, and there's been some follow-up reporting on it, that kids who smoke marijuana tend to have a greater chance of developing schizophrenia later in life. And the reason uh, a lot of scientists are suspecting is because of brain development. A a brain does not develop in an average person until their mid-20s, like fully develop. 
uh, it is still susceptible to changes based on external stimulus and external stimuli, I should say. And uh, researchers more and more are pointing to marijuana as being one of the culprits, uh, causing an increase in schizophrenia. There actually is a documented increase in schizophrenia, and the um, the demographics of those who develop it tend to be very similar now. Uh, white, who's well-to-do, who smoked marijuana in high school a lot. Um, that could be problematic, and I don't know that we are necessarily ready. Although, you know, Colorado is, a, is an example of a place where a lot of the things that people said would happen that would be bad if marijuana was legalized recreationally, they haven't all, some of them have, um, but a lot of them have not. Uh, one of the problems, though, that uh, they're having is the increase in drug cartels from Central and South America moving in, trying to uh, bully, badger, harass, or otherwise take over a lot of the uh, marijuana growth in Colorado. Uh, this has been well documented by federal authorities now, and, and part of that is because the legalization of marijuana in the United States has caused a collapse in marijuana prices uh, in Central and South America. You don't need to go buy your weed from Mexico. Mexico when you can buy it from Colorado and California now. Uh, in fact, we're also seeing an, um, an increase in the export of highly potent marijuana from California uh, to the East Coast. Georgia was, uh, what was I reading in? Oh, was it, it wasn't the AJC. It might have been the New York Times, the Washington Post. I can't remember. There was a story just a couple of weeks ago, and I don't think I had a chance to get to it on the show, uh, that in, in uh, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia in particular, those states, um, it, the, it's basically the Atlanta and Charlotte uh, corridor, and Charlotte spilling over into Greenville, and then the, the Chattanooga-Knoxville area. Basically, that little uh, metropolitan area, the, the 75-85 corridor, is seeing an influx of very highly potent marijuana from California. You know, that, that's one of the things with marijuana is that it's, it's much like tobacco was increasingly... Um, bred as a strain and harvested to be more and more potent, so too has marijuana become more and more potent, uh, including some addictive elements in it that used to not be there. And, and all the old hippies from the 60s and 70s who have never been able to put their marijuana down, swearing it's not addictive, and yet the marijuana strain is now more and more potent. Uh, and what they're seeing is that there's a... a a surplus coming from California. And the reason is because a lot of farmers in California went in big with recreational marijuana in Northern California. And now state regulators, as regulators in California always do, stepped in and regulated so heavily, there is excess crop they need to get rid of. And so they have paired under the table with distributors who then funnel it down to the southeast. And Atlanta, Charlotte, and Chattanooga in that area, and then the spillover effects of Knoxville and Greenville, are seeing these highly potent uh, California strains become readily available as farmers there contract with people in the southeast who ferry the marijuana across the across the country, typically driving, uh, to sell it on the market in the southeast. They want to keep it as far away from California as possible and bring it over to the east coast and the southeast in particular as the southeast is, is at this point 
where they don't really know what to do with it. If you go to if you go to New York, it, it's largely legal now. Uh, you go to Washington D.C., it is. Chicago, it is. Um, Florida is the barriers are breaking down in Florida, but in the Southeast, there's still this issue of what to do with it, and local municipalities are struggling with confusion. And so the the people in California decided the Southeast is ripe for it because there are so many local municipalities who are trying to decide what to do with it, how to deal with it, turn a blind eye to it or not, and be. Because of the confusion in the marketplace, they concede it in the Southeast, um, no pun intended there, uh, of bringing the potent stuff from California here that is no longer available for sale in California. That's kind of one of the funny effects of this is that uh, there was a black market in California prior to the legalization of marijuana. That There was highly potent marijuana for sale in the black market. A lot of celebrities would buy. In fact, there were celebrities, there are even celebrities now bragging about uh, helping develop certain strains of marijuana uh, that were more potent, that they liked, and now you can't sell them on the open market in California because regulators have determined they're too potent. Well, they don't want to get rid of them, so they ship them to Atlanta and Charlotte and Chattanooga to the southeast and let the college kids take advantage of it. And it's becoming a growing problem nationwide, but particularly in the Southeast. Have you heard about Chick-fil-A opening in the UK? You know, I'm I'm still dwelling on polling from last week that shows the the decline of, of Christianity in the United States. Now, um, less than half of millennials say they are uh, churched. Uh, and the amount of Americans who say they are Christian has declined. It's still a majority of the country, but still a decline in the country. Uh, regular church attendance is down. All, all the metrics for Christendom are kind of down. Um, interestingly enough, uh, it is the um, what some would call fundamentalist, but, but really orthodox Bible-believing churches that are sustaining themselves in this country. Much of the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, the PCA, and, and others are sustaining themselves. It's the mainline congregations that are collapsing. And Chick-fil-A has branched out from the United States and, and opened up in uh, Reading in the United Kingdom in a mall. Much as Chick-fil-A here in this country, uh, as it expanded, it began expanding in malls. Well, uh, it's closing down after eight days in business. The Chick-fil-A in the mall closed down. And, and a lot of people out there are saying, well, you know, supply and demand. They have no customers show up to buy their, their chicken sandwiches. Well, then, of course, they're going to go to business. But that's not it at all. And this should be somewhat disturbing uh, to everyone. Chick-fil-A has decided to shut its business in this mall in the U.K., not because it wanted to, but because the mall asked it to. Now, it may stay open for six months. It was a trial run there. But the owners of the mall came under criticism from gay rights activists in the UK for allowing in Chick-fil-A. And the mall owners uh, claimed they did not know about the Kathy family's views on same-sex marriage and support of Christian groups, and they wanted no part of it. And so they have told the Chick-fil-A their lease will not be renewed and, and to please get out as quickly as possible. And what's so crazy about it is that the groups that are pointed at that Chick-fil-A has been helping, I kid you not, the Salvation Army and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, those are the two groups that Chick-fil-A currently supports that gay rights activists have said um, is a sign of homophobia and bigotry. 
the Salvation Army. I mean, let, let's let me just actually focus on the the Fellowship of Christian Athletes for for just a moment. A, a great group that actually teaches moral character and and good sportsmanship and honesty in sports amongst students. Meanwhile, you know, there, there's a story out of the UK that a a male cyclist who claims to be a woman has beaten all the women in a cycling competition and the women are out outraged and the media in the UK is outraged at the women for being outraged at the man. He beat the women in a female cycling competition because he now identifies as a woman. And the bad guys in this are the women complaining, which is absurd. But now you got a shopping mall owner in the UK and it's not just the UK, it's happening here too. Remember, you've got the San Antonio City Council didn't want Chick-fil-A in an airport, not because it's closed on Sunday. You know, had had the San Antonio City Council, or I think in, in Buffalo or Rochester, New York, similar situation, had they come out and they said, we don't want Chick-fil-A in our airport because it's closed on Sunday, and we want restaurants that can serve seven days a week. No one would have said anything. But they didn't say that, did they? They came out and they said they didn't want Chick-fil-A in their airport because it's Christian. Because the Kathy family supports Christian causes. More particularly, the Kathy family uses profits from Chick-fil-A to subsidize the Salvation Army and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, two groups considered homophobic by the left, which is absurd. Y'all, I'm a huge supporter of the Salvation Army. When there are natural disasters around the world, I, I put up a fundraising page on um, the resurgent for the Salvation Army. I like the Salvation Army more than the Red Cross. I think the Salvation Army does a better job with its money, is much more efficient, and is more likely to get into a disaster area before the Red Cross. In fact, if anything, the Salvation Army figures out how to get into an area, and the Red Cross follows their lead much like the North American Mission Board for the uh, Southern Baptist Convention. But what's so crazy here, though, is that so much of the media has ignored this Chick-fil-A story because they can't report Chick-fil-A isn't liked in England because apparently there were big crowds. Just like in, in Toronto, uh, did you know that they opened, I played the audio here a couple of weeks ago, uh, in Toronto of the first Chick-fil-A opening in Canada, and there are still lines three weeks after it opened. Lines form around the block to get in for chicken biscuits and chicken sandwiches. And yet gay rights activists continued to stand outside in protest. Why is anyone proposing a chicken sandwich? You know, you're just giving it more attention and causing more people to want to go check it out. It's just crazy, these people in their angry activism against good sandwiches. You can call in and be a part of the program if you like, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Where was I? Yes, yes, yes. There's a problem on the Democratic side. Elizabeth Warren. Behind-the-scenes, Democrats are saying she's probably the front-runner now. You know, no one's really that impressed with Joe Biden right now. And, and 
The Hunter Biden story continues to fester out there. Kim Strassel, who writes for The Wall Street Journal, made this point over the weekend. I mean, I think it is a big deal. It should surprise no one, though, because prior to the press deciding that this was a, uh, a whole issue that we're not allowed to talk about, Joe Biden did nothing wrong, uh, they were writing all the stories about this and quoting former uh, officials who'd worked for Joe Biden saying they were uneasy with the situation and they didn't like that it was happening. And so, I mean, the issue here to me has always been people like to use the word corrupt. The issue has always been the appearance question, right, is the question of whether or not Hunter Biden was profiting off of his father's position. Um, you don't really need to go much farther than that. And it is hurting Joe Biden out there with primary voters. It is hurting Joe Biden out there. He's still in the real clear politics average ahead, but Elizabeth Warren has been skyrocketing. That puts renewed attention on the fact that she can't come up with any idea on how her Medicare for all plan, really Medicaid for all, because it would suck for everybody if they got into it, uh, how it actually will work. She can't give a straight answer on this. She's now known that this attack was coming for probably three months. It became a debate issue three, four months ago. It's uh, um, intensified ever since, and she still can't answer. Senator, shouldn't you have decided how you're going to pay for the plan before you released her health care plan? I've been working on the details for a long time. I've been a co-sponsor of Medicare for All since it came out. But is it fiscally responsible to release a plan before you figured out how you're going to pay for it? I think there have been many estimates about what the cost would be and many different payment streams. And I've been working on how to give the exact details to make that work. Yeah, still working on the details, she says. Well, of course, um, that has allowed others to come forward and recognize the fact she's been really not straightforward on this issue. Here's Philip Bump from the Washington Post. Yeah, I mean, this definitely does seem like something that has been seized upon uh, by a lot of folks, in part because she has been deliberately cagey in answering the question. I mean, Bernie Sanders is very upfront. He says, yes, we're going to raise taxes, but on the uh, on the other end, people are going to see a lot less in costs because their costs themselves are going to go down. Warren has deliberately tried to avoid saying that, probably to avoid having those, those sound bites. Uh, So now she's sort of stuck in this position. Yeah, she is stuck in this position. And you know who the media has been. So the media is fixated on two candidates. Let's just be honest here. Um, White reporters of a certain set are enamored with Pete Buttigieg. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, who's just a mayor from South Bend, Indiana, that's it, just a mayor, uh, is running as some sort of expert on all sorts of things with a puffed-up resume, and the media absolutely loves him, loves him, and he's going after Elizabeth Warren hard on the issue of her Medicare plan, which she at one point tended to support, and well, Jake Tapper decided needed to, to hold him accountable on this. The attack is kind of confusing because, as you know, in 2018, you were asked whether you supported Medicare for all and whether insurance does not belong in health care. And you tweeted back in part, quote, I, Pete Buttigieg, politician, do henceforth and forthwith declare most affirmatively and indubitably unto the ages that I do favor Medicare for all as I do favor any measure that would help get all Americans covered. So... What happened to that 2018 Medicare for All pledge? Well, the substance is the same. Obviously, my tone there reflected that. So you're being a little, a little cheeky, but you are supporting but Medicare for All, and yeah, you, look, you no longer are. I think Medicare for All means everybody can get into Medicare. And somewhere along the line this year, politicians started saying that it's only Medicare for All if you eliminate all private coverage, which is why I now talk about my plan with the language of Medicare for All who want it. But I think the issue here really isn't terminology. The issue is, what is it that we're going to deliver, and does it give everybody access to Medicare? 
and choice. My plan does both of those things. It's what most Americans want. It's what most Democrats want. It's the best policy. And I'm not having these problems describing how it's going to be paid for. Oh, burn. Yes, he's not having these problems. Well, that's really because people haven't gotten super into the details with him because everyone's viewed him as an afterthought. But he's within just a few points of winning in Iowa. And I don't know that he can pull that off. Listen, I still think that the 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 race is going to be between Sanders, Warren and Biden. And Warren is firing up the crowd, although now AOC is out there with Bernie Sanders. And Sanders, I swear, he will be the gift that keeps on giving to Donald Trump uh, because he is so radical. Well, Chris Wallace also pointed something out to Pete Buttigieg, which you need to understand. This is the fatal flaw for Pete Buttigieg. And Chris Wallace uh, gets to it. Kudos, however, to Pete Buttigieg for going on a Fox News show with Chris Wallace. The last time you and I talked was in August, and I pointed out to you, perhaps not too charitably, that you were at zero percent in the polls among African Americans. Uh, There's a new poll out in the last few days. You're now at two percent support among African Americans. When we last talked, you, you, you described a big outreach to minority communities, the African American community. Why isn't it working? Look, for me, this isn't about the polls. This is about making sure that... Well, in the that, end, it is about the polls. But in order to do well, you need to deserve to do well. And we're focusing on the substance of what I have to offer. Voters want to know how their lives will be different. And in the case of African-American voters, they want to know what my agenda is for black Americans. We're putting forward the most comprehensive plan of any candidate to tackle systemic racism in this country. It's everything from empowering black entrepreneurs and uh, fueling business development to making sure we deal with discrimination in housing and in health, to cutting incarceration in this country by 50% because we know that the criminal justice system disproportionately harms African Americans. Uh, here's a problem. Seriously, th- this, is, this is a problem for Pete Buttigieg. He can say that, but black audiences aren't embracing the message. Um, he's, he is something that white people like, uh, Pete Buttigieg. So they, you know, it's an internet meme. It's, it's a website among other things, things white people like, uh, what is the, there's a website. Oh, is it, is it things white people like things white people like, um, there was a, there's a stuff white people like there's a, a blog that takes aim at it all, all these sorts of things of, of stuff white people like, and uh, Pete Buttigieg is just stereotypical of things white people actually like. Um, and most people still haven't heard of him. Uh, African-American voters, black voters, they, they don't particularly care for him. He doesn't have a great track record. You should understand, uh, in his own town where he is mayor to, um, to the black community, police, police claims in the black community and the like, but white millennial reporters in Washington love that he is a white gay male veteran. They love the fact that he speaks multiple languages. Uh, they, they, I mean, he is something that, that these white people like. But you can't win a Democratic primary if black people don't like you. The number one pool of voters in a Democratic primary outside of Iowa will be black women. 
black women dominate the Democratic primary structure. And so he may be able to go from Iowa to New Hampshire. And, you know, there, there will be consultants out there who say, hey, he's going to get a huge bounce out of this. And that bounce will fuel his momentum. But I'm just not sure that's the case, actually. If he can't make inroads right now um, with black voters, he's going to have a hard time doing it moving forward. And that's going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem with... And I'm sorry, um, uh, I, I should confess to being distracted at this moment. Charlie's going to kill me. Um, I'm getting like five different text alerts that something went up on my website that had a big typo in it. <laughs> but it's related to Buttigieg, so I'm, I'm, it's all directly relevant. Uh, in fact, if you go to the resurgent right now and you, you see the, the post, um, Buttigieg, he gets a leg up in Iowa. And uh, this is uh, David Thornton writing about this, and it's worth noting here that a recent polling of the Democratic primary in Iowa shows that the state is up for grabs, and the most recent candidate to surge is Pete Buttigieg. According to a new poll, he's jumped to third place now. He's surpassed Bernie Sanders. It's 500 likely Democratic caucus goers show Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren in a statistical tie with Buttigieg judged at 13%. Now, I got to tell you, the Real Clear Politics Average, as Dave Thornton over at the Resurgent points out, uh, yes, he is definitely showing some momentum. You can see the momentum. And interestingly enough, and, and this is probably the most interesting point of it all, if you look at where the decline or where Pete Buttigieg's growth comes from, the growth comes from the decline of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. With Joe Biden and Kamala Harris declining, Pete Buttigieg has started to go up. And Bernie Sanders had a decline and then a rebound. And Elizabeth Warren has, has gone up and gone down. Uh, she is now um, a po- less than a point. She is at 20.7% in the Real Clear Politics average, and Biden is at 21 points. Uh, Buttigieg and Sanders are now tied for third place in the Real Clear Politics polling average. He has certainly got some major momentum going for him right now. He's also very much an unknown candidate who hasn't uh, been probed by the media. And I don't know that the media would probe uh, Buttigieg very heavily in the same way they want Elizabeth Warren because he would be a demographic checkmark for the media. Uh, having a gay president or a female president, the media would show his advancement. We've had the black president. We now need the female president. We now need the gay president. Then we will need the transgender president once we've had all of them. Uh, they'll put the Hispanic president at the, end, at the back of the line. The problem here for the media is exactly that. Hispanic and black voters tend to be more socially conservative. Even in the Democratic Party, Hispanic and black voters tend to be more conservative and black women tend to be hesitant at the idea of having a white male gay president as their nominee. And they also feel a deep sense of loyalty to Joe Biden. But there's something else in the Democratic primary right now. Elizabeth Warren has momentum with black voters. She didn't, and now she does. And that's hurting Joe Biden in the process. What may help Joe Biden, though, is this shift with Bernie Sanders. Did you hear about the Sanders rally? Bernie Sanders had a massive rally over the weekend in Brooklyn. 
Yeah, a bunch of hipsters in Brooklyn turned out for Bernie Sanders, which is just perfect. He had Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez come, uh, and she uttered some really inane things, as she is wont to do. Bernie Sanders himself said some crazy things. Sanders, of course, championing uh, the Green New Deal. Our legislation will hold the fossil fuel industry accountable. It will create up to 20 million new jobs as we transform our energy system away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. It will give us the tools that we need to help lead the world in combating climate change and save this planet for our children and future generations. Yep. Yep, the Green New Deal, the Green New Deal is, is the panacea for the Democrats. It will it will save us from everything, ourselves, the environment, foreign policy disasters, uh, the like. Well, he was joined at the rally by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I looked at the quality of education in the Bronx, and they looked at 50% dropout rates. They looked at the inequity of education, the inequity of education funding. The fact that teachers weren't paid, the fact that kids weren't given their their tools to succeed, and that, frankly, it not only had to do with their income, but it had to do with their melanin, too. Their melanin, too. And so they made, and my family made a really hard decision. And my whole family chipped in to buy a small house about 40 minutes north of here. And that's when I got my first taste of a country who allows their kids' destiny to be determined by the zip code that they are born in. And so much of my life was shuttled between these two worlds. And not just the two worlds between the Bronx and Westchester County, but the continental US, New York State, and the realities of Puerto Rico, where my family is too. Can I just say that she just articulated the best case for school choice among Democrats? You you would think she would want school choice. Her parents moved her to a different school district so she could get a good education. Shouldn't every family have that right? And yet she's opposed to it. If you know, this is the problem with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I don't think she's dumb. Uh, I think she's not thoughtful. Uh, she she has seen the world through one lens uh, in one area, and she hasn't really traveled. In fact, you, you can get the sense when she does some of her Instagrams of her traveling around the country, the the things she experiences that she's never experienced before. Look at her and and the garbage disposal. She never experienced a garbage disposal before. And and someone who's lived that sheltered, that naive a life. I shouldn't say sheltered, but naive a life. Who is not that well traveled? Who is not that well experienced in America as a whole outside of Brooklyn? Uh, wants to make public policy decisions that affect 350 million of us, uh, which should horrify us all. Uh, that's one good thing about the Electoral College and forcing candidates to move around the country to parts of the country they might never experience. Maybe now she will see some of that and have an awakening, although I'm not going to hold my breath for that. But here she is articulating the same statement that 
conservatives make for school choice, that we should let parents, parents should not have to pack up and move to a new location to get their kids a better education. They should have the opportunities within their community where they can get a better education. And she's making that, and yet she can't take the next step and say, let's let everyone do this where they are. In fact, I suspect she's opposed to charter schools. There's an interesting study out. It's kind of funny. A buddy of mine is texting me this uh, from The Atlantic. It was what I was going to talk about anyway. Um, he says, have you seen this? Yes. I, I told him he needed to, to tune in now. Uh, new polling suggests that uh, Donald Trump's base is totally unified behind him, no matter what investigations might reveal. President Trump famously once said he wouldn't lose support even if he shot someone on Fifth Avenue in New York City. As his presidency enters its most dramatic phase yet, just one year ahead of the 2020 election, he might be right. Essentially, 94% of Republicans in a September poll said they opposed impeachment. 93% of Republicans remain opposed to it in mid-October, even after Ukraine revelations. Uh, and what's more... Uh, 47% of evangelical, no, 42% of Republicans say there's virtually nothing the president could do to lose their approval. Among Republicans who cited Fox News as their primary news source, it was 55%. And, uh, of course, there is, there, there's outrage on the left. How, how can you say this? But, you know, I'm increasingly mindful when I look at a lot of the anti-Trump antagonism out there. Um, that the people who are blasting Fox News and, and Republican loyalty to the, to the president, uh, they've got their own problems with their hostility to the president, and they're looking at left-wing news sources. Uh, I, I get that if you watch Fox News, you oftentimes don't hear some of the stories that are most critical of the president. But you know, if you watch MSNBC, you never hear stories that are favorable to the president. Uh, I am in this very weird world uh, where... Um, I, I'm supporting the president. I don't support impeachment. And yet I'm willing to criticize some of the things the president does, like the Doral golf course situation or the, the Syrian situation. And so I'm getting blown up by supporters of the president for not being supportive enough. And at the same time, uh, when I criticize him on stuff like the, uh, Syrian situation or the Doral golf course situation, I'm getting blown up by Trump antagonists who think I'm not antagonizing enough. I mean, you know, the, the story of Goldilocks is that she she sits in the middle and she's just right. Um, she takes the middle road and she's just right. And I got to tell you, in, in this day and age, Goldilocks would be bombarded by both sides for sitting in the middle, taking a position um, on um, calling balls and strikes as best they can. Uh, the, the I got to tell you, though, the amount of evangelical support for the president out there and their willingness to excuse stuff is something nearly two-thirds of white evangelicals said Donald Trump has not hurt the dignity of the presidency. By contrast, majorities of all other religious groups said Trump has damaged the image of the office. There are a lot of people who are looking for a savior in politics when they're not going to find a savior in politics, and that's a problem. Concurrent to all of that, can we just be honest and acknowledge something that the Atlantic does not do? The leftward drift of the Democratic Party is Donald Trump's best friend right now. The willingness of the Democratic Party to go off the rails and show unbridled hostility to religion, to churches, to people of faith— to small family businesses that want to be run as Christians, 
their hostility to it all helped Donald Trump. It is, it's interesting to me how abortion remains really the most divisive thing in this country. Um, just absolutely stunning to me how, um, just, just how abortion has set the stage for so much of what is happening in this country including impeachment. In fact, we'll get into impeachment when we come back as the president advances more judges through the Senate, a bipartisan group of of senators voting for these judges. Democrats are outraged by that now. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you want to call in, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425 is the phone number. Pierre Delecto. Pierre Delicto. Now, I got to tell you, man, the the media, maybe they should all go to law school. They could be doing this better. A a buddy of mine, Casey, who is a lawyer, got this, and I think he is exactly right here. Um, Pierre Delicto is more likely than not a play on the legal phrase in pari delicto. The idea that both parties are equally at fault. It's a phrase in law, a Latin phrase in pari delicto. Uh, Mitt Romney has been masquerading on Twitter since 2011 with a a synonymous, uh, an anonymous Twitter account. The name given on the account, Pierre Delicto, we don't know if he's had the Pierre Delicto name the entire time or if he ultimately changed it at some point in the past. I will tell you this, he followed me. That's right. Your host, Mitt Romney, followed me, uh, tweeted me several occasions, apparently. One time said I was wrong about something. I don't know what. Um, and other times uh, either retweeted something I said or, or some such. Uh, Mitt Romney in big news today because he's, he's given a profile where basically he says they can't touch me now. Um, he can be open and honest uh, with how he feels. And by the way, I, I got to tell you, I don't mean to sound critical of Mitt Romney. There's something refreshing about a senator who feels unbeholden to the powers that be. And Romney is unbeholden to the powers that be. He was elected in uh, Utah. Utah is the most Republican state in the country, and Utah Republicans do not like Donald Trump. So Mitt Romney can be free to express himself and his concerns over the direction of the country. He is, uh, and much of it is deeply critical of the president, although not as critical as some would say. Um, Part of it, you do need to understand, is the media amplifying this perhaps more than they probably should. But nonetheless, uh, the media is still amplifying um, the concerns that Mitt Romney has. He's had an ongoing interview with uh, McKay Cobbins at the Atlantic, and um, essentially it's setting Mitt Romney up to be the alternative to Donald Trump. Now, mind you, not to run against Mitt, uh, Donald Trump. And Mitt Romney's been very, very adamant he will not be running for president, but he does think that the president doesn't necessarily represent conservatives per se or the Republican Party as he should, and he's not unafraid to speak up about it. Now, this comes as what I've been telling you all for a couple of weeks now is is starting to come to fruition. National Journal's Josh Krashauer has a story out today that the Senate is very much in play, 
and Republicans are starting to get concerned about it. Uh, Tom Tillis in North Carolina is not doing well. Uh, he is being outraised by the Democrats, and uh, he is not polling well in the suburbs of Charlotte. He's not polling well in, in Winston-Salem, the Raleigh-Durham area. And, and you would expect that in those areas, he wouldn't be polling well. The problem is that those areas have Republican suburbs and Republican exurban areas, and he's polling badly there, too. Martha McSally in Arizona is also pouring badly. She never should have been the appointee. She didn't win that race. Uh, she's not a strong candidate. And Martha McSally looks like she may lose Arizona. Interestingly enough, Susan Collins in Maine is not doing well either. Uh, people uh, dislike her, and, and there's a related tie there. In Iowa, Jody Ernst is sunk below the Democrats who are outraising her in Iowa. She's not doing well, and the Republicans already expect to lose Cory Gardner in uh, Colorado. So let, let's let's run these numbers here. You've got Iowa, you've got North Carolina, you've got Maine, you've got Arizona, you've got Colorado. Those are five Republican senators. You only need four Republicans in the Senate to side with the Democrats to pursue impeachment. Well, they can't stop a trial. So you got five Republicans who uh, have the potential to side with Democrats. Um, beyond those five, you've got Mitt Romney, so there's six. Mitt Romney says he's open to considering impeachment. Uh, let's see, I don't know about Mike Lee, but uh, Mike Lee, I, I think, would treat the constitutional process um, fairly. Um, he has not been public. I have not talked to him about this, but Lee is someone who respects the Constitution and so would have to consider impeachment. Uh, ben Sass is on the ballot. I doubt he would support impeachment, um, but at the same time, behind the scenes, uh, might um, try to get other Republicans. You've got uh, Richard Burr of North Carolina, who is not up for re-election this year. He's on the Senate Intelligence Committee. He is a Republican who has been critical of the president behind the scenes. He might. Uh, Charles Grassley, who's the former chairman of the Intellig of the Judiciary Committee, has been somewhat critical of the president. He's not up for re-election. Uh, Lindsey Graham is the chair of the Intellig of the Judiciary Committee. He is up for re-election, um, and he is mad as all get out at the president over the Syrian situation. Uh, there's Marco Rubio, who has some concerns about the president, although he's been somewhat supportive of the president. He's still got concerns. Uh, that's 12 senators right there. And I don't know where they stand. Uh, all of them right now are dismissive of impeachment because impeachment right now appears to be very partisan. But if you go back to the Nixon situation, in the Nixon situation, you had a situation where uh, Republicans all drew a very bright line saying it was a partisan witch hunt. They weren't going to support it. And then next thing you know, they're asking the president to get out of the way. The situation in the Middle East isn't going well for the president and the the economic situation in this country starting to look a little wobbly because of tariffs. You got the Curtis situation is not helping. The president put his foot in his mouth on the Doral situation, put some senators in an awkward position where they came out and said, yeah, okay, let's do this. And then he walked it back. And, and now the reporters are going to people like Marco Rubio saying, Hey, I thought you said this was okay. And now even the president's realized it wasn't bad. Why didn't you speak up? The, the saving grace for the Republicans right now is the Democrats and their process on impeachment. But again, if the Senate looks like they're going down 
As much as these senators support the president publicly, the reality is they much more support their own reelection, and they support Mitch McConnell being the Senate Majority Leader. If it looks likely that Chuck Schumer could be the Senate Majority Leader, some of these Republicans will think, I'd rather take my chances with Pence than with Trump. Impeachment is an entirely political process. Please understand that. Despite all of the high-minded rhetoric out there about impeachment, it is always and has always been a political process. And these Republican senators might think they can take their chances with Pence. If they think they've already lost, if they think they're already going down, some of them will think, what do we have to lose? And that's the president's problem. Then the Syrian situation hurt him on this. I want to replay you this. I played it in the first hour. This is Chris Christie, and he actually makes a point here, and he says he's told the president about this. I doubt it was an attempt to get ahead of information. Um, I think it, I think it was a mistake. Uh, and, you know, where it came from and, and how the chief of staff decided to do that. I think you saw pretty clearly that the, that the uh, secretary of state was expressing the same type of concerns that I understand White House lawyers were expressing about the press conference. So I don't think it was some grand plan. I, I, and, and what I'd also say is that, you know, I've said this to the president as recently as this week. We have to be in friend-making mode. Okay? We have to be exactly what Sarah said is exactly right. Um, there's a time to be combative, um, and there's a time to be in friend-making mode vis-a-vis your own party. And that's the president's problem right now is he's making some of these decisions and it's making Republicans in the House and Senate mad, particularly when they rush out to defend him, like on the Doral course, and then he walks it back. But the president's saving grace right now, of course, is the Democrats. Here's Cory Booker talking about impeachment. If Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell doesn't go for it, doesn't do a full trial in the Senate, but tries to rush this through either in a few hours or just rejects it out of hand? Well, first of all, Jonathan, I've, I've stopped short of saying what my vote will be as a juror because I, re, I respect the process. I respect the Constitution. I don't even know what the articles of impeachment are going to be right now. He doesn't know what the articles of impeachment are going to be. None of the Democrats know what the articles of impeachment are right now. Um, I, I, I go back to this uh, senior Democratic uh, staffer who called me last week who was upset with the outline I gave you guys. Uh, I put it up at the resurgent and it got circulated in Washington where I pointed out that the Democrats are defying their prior process. The Democrats have always held formal votes to begin impeachment inquiries, and they're not doing it now. And, and his rebuttal is that, well, they will do it. They will do it. Uh, he doesn't think that the, the Thanksgiving timeline is right. He thinks it's going to be a Christmas timeline. He doesn't think it's possible to do it by Thanksgiving. What they're going to do is they're going to do a, an informal process of gathering evidence and then do a formal process before the Judiciary Committee at, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, nobody knows what's going on. In fact, uh, you've got a number of Republicans out there complaining about the process internally. Uh, when Democrats hear Will Hurd speak up, Will Hurd is the outgoing Republican congressman from Texas. He won by about 200 votes in an election. In fact, it was the next day before people knew whether he won or not. Um, he is a, a congressman from Southwest Texas. He's not happy with the process. He's one of the people who would consider joining Democrats if the process is credible. Do you think that there was, if not a quid pro quo, an understanding or a perception of one between the White House and Ukraine? 
Um, th that's a good question, and to me, that's the heart of this 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 matter. And what was the you know, if there was a quid pro quo, what was it for? Was it for investigation of the previous election, or was it to get dirt uh, in, in for for 2020? And what we haven't heard yet, we haven't heard from any Ukrainian official that felt like there was this uh, arrangement. We haven't even had an, a Ukrainian official tell a State Department official that there that they felt like their arms were being twisted. Um, I would have thought, based on some of the State Department officials that we've met, uh, we've, we've interviewed so far, that you would even get an inkling of that was happening. When I was in the CIA, I participated in, you know, diplomacy as well. And it's, this is very often that a, the, the country you're posted to, in this case, let's say Ukraine, if they hear something, they're going to go to their contacts at the embassy and say, hey, what does this actually mean? And we haven't gotten any whiff of that when it comes to this to this issue that's important that's very important um will heard I, I gotta be honest with you heard doesn't care for the president and i heard him saying that uh statement um who was his interview with um it was on face the nation on cbs and the way he said it you know let me let me tell you how i i read it and then you go, I want to play it again after I tell you how I read his statement, interpreted his statement. And then let's play it again and see if you can pick up on what I'm saying. Heard, you need to know the backstory here. Heard does not like the president very much. Um, and the president has been deeply critical of him in the past. In fact, I, I think that Heard is one of the Republicans that Donald Trump mocked thinking he had lost, and it turns out he hadn't lost. Uh, he's not going to run again. Um, it looks like his district is swinging so far to the Democrats now in Texas. It's one of those the Republicans expect to lose. He's not going to try it again. He's got a respected history as being in the CIA. And I, I heard his statement on Face the Nation, and it almost sounded like it was heard saying, doo -doo 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 hey, Democrats, look here, look here. We need this. We need this. If you want my vote, you need to do this. I mean, it sounded very much like signaling to the Democrats, you got to show us this evidence. There are people who claim the evidence is there. If you remember some of the initial press reports, Ukraine officials were confused and thought there was a quid pro quo. Ukraine officials, according to the New York Times, thought that this was so. And what Will Hurd is saying is that thus far we're unaware of that actually happening. None of these people have actually testified. You need to do this if you want my vote. I, it sounded to me like he was signaling. Listen, listen to it. I've, I've told you how I interpret it now. You've heard it once. Now I'm interpreting it. See if you, you hear the same thing. Do you think that there was, if not a quid pro quo, an understanding or a perception of one between the White House and Ukraine? Um, th that's a good question, and to me, that's the heart of this 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 matter. And what was the you know, if there was a quid pro quo, what was it for? Was it for investigation of the previous election, or was it to get dirt uh, in, in for for 2020? And what we haven't heard yet, we haven't heard from any Ukrainian official that felt like there was this uh, arrangement. We haven't even had an, a Ukrainian official tell a State Department official that there 
where that they felt like their arms were being twisted. Um, I would have thought, based on some of the State Department officials that we've met, uh, we've, we've interviewed so far, that you would even get an inkling of that was happening. When I was in the CIA, I participated in you know diplomacy as well, and it's this is very often that a the the country you're posted to, in this case, let's say Ukraine, if they hear something, they're going to go to their contacts at the embassy and say, hey, what does this actually mean? And we haven't gotten any whiff of that when it comes to this to this issue. We haven't gotten any whiff of that. And also note his distinction between looking back at 2016 and looking forward to 2020. I'm with the president and Will Hurd and all the other Republicans on this. If the president was just asking Ukraine to go back to 2016 and look what happened, he's got legitimate concerns. The media has largely dismissed them or doesn't understand them. I think they've just dismissed them. But he's got legitimate concerns about where some of the steel dossier came from. There was some credible evidence it came from people in Ukraine. Uh, you've got Rudy Giuliani's two guys uh, who may be scamming and maybe not saying a lot of this stuff came from Ukraine. The president's got legitimate concerns. If it's 2020, that's a problem, and, and Will Hurd would have a problem there. But it just sounds to me like he's signaling to the Democrats, Psst, hey, guys, you need to go here and get this information if you want us to vote. And that's part of the problem for the president. you got 19 of these Republicans in the House who they don't really like him. Many of them are leaving, and they blame the president for their departure, and they would vote for impeachment if there's a there there. But is there a there there? Have any of you guys seen Gemini Man over the weekend? Um, it it's the I mean I got to admit the the CGI stuff looks really weird. It, it's out at the theater now. Uh, it is uh, not a good movie. Put it to you that way. Um, I I have not seen it. Uh, it's Angley produced it. Jerry Bruckheimer is one of the producers here. It's essentially. Old Will Smith versus uh, Young Will Smith. Uh, young Will Smith apparently it's a he's a clone, and they know each other. They mimic each other, and it's not doing well at the box office. It grossed thirty six point five million dollars. Uh, it needs to gross $275 million to break even, which it may do, but it has fallen pretty dramatically. It's got a 25% box office rating. Uh, what's the cinema score? Cinema score, oh, a B-plus in cinema score. Uh, which actually isn't great for something like this. Um, and... Uh, as a 38 out of 100 for uh, Metacritic with un generally unfavorable views. Now, the reason I bring this up is because uh, this is, it, it should be a somewhat original concept. And there's this prevailing wisdom in Hollywood that only sequels and remakes are doing well right now. And so here comes something fresh. It's Will Smith versus Will Smith in a movie. And it's Will Smith, who was a, a huge box office star, but his movies haven't been doing well of late. So when I was in college, Will Smith was kind of the star of the day. Uh, Will Smith seemed to, um, he, he went from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air to a musical career to leading man status. Uh, you had enemy of the state. Uh, he turned down the role of Neo in the matrix. I kid you not. Uh, and then went out with the wild, wild West. And think about that. Think, think, think about this for a minute. 
Will Smith turned down the role of Neo, the Keanu Reeves character, in The Matrix and instead decided to do Wild Wild West. Uh, That should probably tell you everything you need to know. He continues, by the way, to deny ties to Scientology, um, even as a lot of people say that he is. But again, though, this is... This is bizarre that he turned down the, the, the one for the other. Uh, but what was it? There was Independence Day. There was for a while there. It was like he, he launched every Fourth of July when I was uh, in college into law school. There was Enemy of the State. And then there was uh, Men in Black. There was Men in Black 2. There was Ali. Um, there was um, what else? Ind- Independence Day I mentioned. Uh, he had this this massive pursuit of of good movies. There was also Bad Boys uh, too, and then suddenly he started just taking some really terrible movies, and his career is just kind of collapsed. There's the af- After Earth garbage, and this G- uh, Gemini Man movie. Man, it, it's just he can't hold up. He's like becoming Tom Cruise or something. It is me. Okay. Um, I, I mentioned the Democrats ongoing radicalization is one of the, the keys to the president, uh, winning reelection. And uh, let me go back. Let me play the clip. We played it plenty of times. I've got it bookmarked now because we have played it so much. I still think it is deeply relevant. This is from your LGBTQ plan. And here's what you write. This is a quote. Freedom of religion is a fundamental right, but it should not be used to discriminate. Do you think religious institutions uh, like colleges, churches, charities, should they lose their tax exempt status if they oppose same sex marriage? Yes. There can be no reward. No benefit, no tax break for anyone or any institution, any organization in America that denies the full human rights and the full civil rights of every single one of us. And so as president, we're going to make that a priority and we are going to stop those who are infringing upon the human rights of our fellow Americans. Uh, Yeah, and the crowd goes wild. And that has a lot of evangelicals willing to stand with the president and a lot of others. And then, of course, there is the whole issue of Medicare, Medicaid for all, uh, Rahm Emanuel, Barack Obama's first chief of staff, at one point uh, one of the ranking members in Congress for the Democrats and also a Bill Clinton staffer, mayor of Chicago, uh, in incredible resume, also uh, Ari Emanuel's brother uh, from, you know, Ari Emanuel and, and Entourage on HBO and whatnot. Yeah, uh, here's Rahm Emanuel. The issue for Democrats is about price control and cost control. It is not about only coverage, it's about cost. Right. And we have got to rewire ourselves. You said that, that's not what, that's not no, what anybody I, heard no, of. Tuesday. No, no, I, the problem is, and here's the other thing, historically, let alone policy-wise. The fact is, when President Obama did the ACA, it was to be built upon, not to be pulled out and start all over again. This was a 100-year effort. That's what's insane about this process. Your next step should be, early buy into Medicare for early retirees and then take on the fact that President Trump's budget has the largest cut in uh, Medicare ever by any I'm president. So and yeah, the Democrats are tearing up themselves over this and scaring the American people. You know, again, 
Uh, I played the audio earlier, Pete Buttigieg, talking about Elizabeth Warren, and and Jake Tapper points out that Buttigieg has flip-flopped on this. He supported Medicaid for All and then walked back and says he wants to allow people to keep their private insurance uh, if they like it. Uh, This doesn't poll well at all with the American people. And the Democrats continue to walk into these traps. Uh, that they themselves said that's you know that's the craziest thing about the Democrats right now is is it's like both sides neither side wants to win it's just both sides are are trying to lose and have the other side win uh, it, Donald Trump and some of the crazy things he's done of late just it, it objectively helps Democrats and there are things I wish he would not do. The, the Syrian situation polls very badly. Uh, the Doral golf course, he's walked to that back. He's walked back the Syrian situation. We weren't here in the first hour. Uh, the president has decided he is going to keep uh, several hundred troops in the northern Syria area now. Uh, he has decided not to send the G7 summit to the Doral golf course. He didn't like the blowback from Republicans. Uh, this is deeply problematic stuff for the Republicans. But they continue to be helped by Democrats who are just losing their ever-living minds on stuff. Um, yeah, I, Rahm Emanuel and uh, this issue, and then you've got uh, Elizabeth Warren can't make up her mind on how she's going to fund Medicare. And then Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez continues to open her mouth. She's very clearly one of the influential characters within the Democratic Party. She's campaigning with uh, Bernie Sanders around the country now. I've played a couple of clips from her. Listen to this other clip of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez at the Bernie Sanders rally in Brooklyn. My family relied on Planned Parenthood for prenatal care. Then Bernie Sanders fought for me. When I was growing up, and education was being gutted for kids in the quote-unquote wrong zip code, Bernie Sanders fought for us. When I was a child that relied on CHIP so that I could see a doctor, Bernie Sanders fought for a single-payer health care system. When the federal government decided to discriminate and abandon my queer family and friends, Bernie Sanders was putting his career on the line for us. My queer family? What? When I was a waitress and when it was time for me to graduate college with student debt, Bernie Sanders was one of the only ones that said no person should be graduating with life crushing debt at the start of their lives. Wait, wait. No person should be graduated? Uh, that sounds more like she quitchamawaited than graduated. No no person should be graduated? No person should graduate. No person should graduate. Um, that's... Uh, oh, my queer family. And, you know, again... Uh, it's it's totally worth playing this one again um, because I, I don't think this stuff plays well with the American public. I mean, I could be completely out of touch. Let's just admit, you and me both, we could be completely out to lunch, but the polling suggests we're not. For all the polling that suggests the president's having a hard time with his reelection, the polling suggests voters really don't like this sort of thing. And how we're going to do it. 
is with a mass mobilization of working class people at the ballot box. That's the only way that we are going to win this thing. Because our number, one of our top priorities, our number, our one of our top priorities, just defeating Donald Trump, but defeating the symptom, the the systems of which he is a symptom. That means that what we need to do in this country is organize a fundamentally positive and welcoming movement, one that is not only mindful of the ugly histories that created our present inequalities, the racism of housing segregation, the classism of the Hyde Amendment that tells us that low-income women shouldn't have access to health care. But we also recognize the imperialist and colonial histories that there contribute you go. There to you our go. There you go. Uh, the, the the racist, imperialist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, y'all, this, a, a progressive asked me over the weekend, well, he tweeted at me, I guess I should say, but it was a question. Why are you, when you clearly don't care for him, still supporting Donald Trump? And you know it's it's true. Um, I, I I do think character counts. It is a big issue for me, and I, I don't think the president has great character. And I but I told the guy I said, yeah, I've I've got issues with the president. I I spend five hours a day on radio talking about politics, and oftentimes say things that are critical of the president. But then I look at the Democrats, and what do we have here? We have a group of people who have radicalized themselves on abortion to the point where they defend the governor of Virginia for talking about letting women give birth to children, make them comfortable, and then decide whether or not to kill them. And they deny he said it when he said it. You know, what's so interesting here is is for all the people in the media giving Mick Mulvaney a hard time about whether he said what he said in his press conference last week, they, they've completely given a pass on Ralph Northam for saying what he said. Then you've got uh, Beto O'Rourke wants to tax churches and, and religious institutions and punish Christians. You've got uh, Democrats wanting to take guns away, not just Beto O'Rourke. You've got this this whole idea that this country was founded in 1619, the New York Times, that we're a racist, bad country anyway. It doesn't matter what we do. The only way to solve the problem is, is reparations. Uh, you're, you're darn right I'm going to support the President of the United States. Even if I've got concerns with President Trump, you're, you're absolutely right uh, that it, it, I, in 2016, voted third party, and that guy has been a disappointment ever since. I am embarrassed to say I voted for him. But I said in 2016, I said, look, character counts. It matters to me, and I think that Clinton and, and Trump have bad character. I don't want to vote for either one of them. And so I didn't. I voted third party. That guy's turned out to be a nut. And you know what? 100 million people disagreed with me on whether character counts. 120 million people disagreed with me on whether or not character counted. And, you know, I, I said for 2020, and I've told the president this to his face. I have I have met with the president. I have told him this. I have said he and I continue to disagree on a lot of things, character and otherwise. 
But I don't think the president is trying to destroy the country as we know it. I don't think he's trying to destroy capitalism. I don't think he's trying to destroy the free market. I do think he is helping the cause of life. I do think he is supporting the free market, even if I hate tariffs. I do think that the president, for all of his many faults, is a fairly baseline Republican. I've, I've got criticism with him. And, you know, we, we had somebody that they wanted to call earlier uh, and disagree with me. We we did not let them on the line because it was just one of those yelling, venting calls. You know, By the way, if you want to call, you are welcome to call and disagree with me. We're not one of those shows that uh, only allows people to call who agree. But at least try to have an articulable point as opposed to just wanting to yell with spittle. There, there's no reason for you to just call and yell, uh, have a discussion with me if you disagree with me. We're perfectly happy to have you call and disagree with me on an issue. And we may agree to disagree. We we may wind up finding some common ground. But this this yelling and antagonism at me because I, I say something critical of the president, honestly, I, I think that the people who refuse to criticize the president, who support him and cannot bring themselves to criticize him, hurt him. Because uh, look at the criticism of the president of the Doral golf course. The president would have continued on with the Doral golf course had Republicans not spoken up. And because they did, he changed his mind on an issue that pulled overwhelmingly negatively for the president at a time the president is trying to make the case about the Biden family corruption and how the Bidens used political office to get themselves enriched. The president as president is sending this conference to the Doral golf course. And you and I can sit here and say he was going to do it at cost and hardly anyone will believe us. And had Republicans not spoken up on the issue, the president would have continued that policy course. And you can say there's nothing wrong with that policy course, except overwhelmingly the public says otherwise. And had Republicans not been willing to speak up, he would have continued down that road. So you're absolutely right. I, I am totally willing to stand up and criticize the president when I think it's right. Uh, and I know that the president listens. I, I, I know I've got some access within the White House that a lot of other people don't, and they, they take my concern seriously. So I'm happy to do it. And it's not trying to help the other side. It's not trying to cost the president the election. I, I've said repeatedly, much to the scorn of many, that I intend to support the president. But that doesn't mean I'm going to shut up about what I think is right and wrong. And unfortunately, I think too many people on both sides these days do want to shut up on what they think is right and wrong because they're afraid it will help the other side. My position has always been, going back to the Bush administration, when the White House, when I was running redstate.com and the Bush administration would send people to Red State to write things that were counter to what I was saying to try to push back on me. They would disagree with me. They brought me up to the White House one time to, to talk to me. And I have said then, and I have said during the Obama administration when I was critical of Republicans, and I'm saying now that I'm, I was an elected Republican. And I have always maintained that if I can't be critical of my own side and try to get them to do better, then the voters are going to hold us accountable. I would much rather be critical of my own side and get them to change their ways to avoid the voters being pissed off with them than to just champion stuff I think is wrong or keep my mouth shut so that they don't know and they think, oh, nobody's nobody's saying anything. Let's just let let's go on. No, sometimes you got to fix it. And that's part of the problem the Democrats are having right now themselves on the Democratic side. No one on the Democratic side wants to call out, particularly the media. The media is so invested 
in getting the Democrats elected right now, they're not willing to hold their own side accountable. It's amazing to see the amount of pushback Elizabeth Warren is getting over her Medicaid for all thing. And the only reason she's getting it is because it polls so negatively. People are waving flags and hey, Liz, you got to come up with something different. And now she is. And I guarantee you. In fact, we, we we need to to note to Charlie, we should flag this moment in this show on this day so that we can repeat it when it when it happens. You know and I know. If she is the nominee, the media she will have come out with some sort of excuse, and the media will excuse it all away and say, see. She just, she needed to get some time to figure it out. And now she's figured it out and it's all going to work. They will give her every excuse possible when it happens. I personally think that we need to be honest in what we say and cover the news truthfully. I, I think the truth matters. The truth does matter. I'm not one of those post-truth conservatives. I think it matters, and it matters on both sides. Welcome back. Uh, okay, I, I want to wade into something here. Uh, you know, I, 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 I do engage in these issues on occasion, and I'll, I'll engage in them here. Over the weekend, uh, John MacArthur, the, the pastor, you know, the very first time I ever preached, um, I had my MacArthur Study Bible with me. I uh, was preaching in Colorado, and who should be sitting right in front of me but John MacArthur um, was the most intimidating experience of my life. I had a 25, 30-minute sermon prepared, and I think I did the entire sermon in eight minutes. Um, I mean, I rushed. It was, it was, I was disappointed in myself. Everybody liked it. Um, they said politely, John MacArthur was in the front. I was so nervous. I, I, I very much liked John MacArthur. Uh, over the weekend, he uh, went after Beth Moore. He was at a conference, and he uh, was asked about Beth Moore. What word uh, first comes to mind when asked about Beth Moore? And he said, go home. Members of the crowd liked it. And, and then he went into this issue of complementarianism and egalitarianism. This, this is something I, I was uh, born and raised Southern Baptist. I go to a PCA church now. Uh, we've got our own issues with um, social justice, racial reconciliation, critical race theory, and, and uh, polluting minds. Uh, and I tend to be a, a in the firm complementarian count. For those of you who have no idea what that is, that is, uh, women can't be in the pulpit. Uh, I go to a church where the deacons, the elders, the pastors all have to be men. And um, my wife and I both uh, agree. I mean, it's what Scripture says, we think. And we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Well, Beth Moore is a complementarian in that she she thinks that uh, pastors who preach um, need to be men. But she's considered a soft complementarian in that she's okay with women being in the pulpit for some reasons um, and uh, beyond church announcement. Listen, if there's a church announcement and a woman takes the pulpit, I think that's okay. But um, nonetheless, uh, some people call her an egalitarian in which uh, they claim that Beth Moore takes the position men and women can both preach in a church. Um, I, I, there's no reason to go down the, the theological complaining here other than I think what, uh, MacArthur said could have been said more gracefully and full disclosure here. I'm a big Beth Moore fan. I've, I, I have theological disagreements with her. Um, and some of that is on complementarianism and women in pulpits. And, uh, we've got some core theological differences and direct revelation and things like that. But I, I think the world of her, she's, she's just been 
a, a wonderful part of my family's life uh, with my wife and now with my daughter. In fact, we got a nice package from Beth in the mail uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, that she was sending to my daughter. I just, I think the world of her. And I think that a lot of men in the church don't appreciate the ministry role that she plays to women, uh, talking to women in ways that a lot of men can't. Um, but you know, as a, a buddy of mine said, I put this up at the resurgent, um, uh, I was trading notes with a, a friend and he pointed out at the Annie Beth Moore crowd, once Beth Moore's influence to continue to spread all the hardcore re- reform types, uh, who, if that would be me, uh, just need to keep talking like they're talking. They're speaking only to themselves. They're convincing hardly anyone. They're proving their critics true and setting back their own movement. Furthermore, they are making Beth Moore into a very sympathetic victim by their insensitivity, cruelty, and unmasked chauvinism. So they're plotting their own demise in direct proportion to their excessive posturing. Yeah, listen, he's got, this is a friend of mine and I think he's got a good point. Um, I, there are the Southern Baptist convention, the PCA and a few other conservative Orthodox evangelical churches have some challenges. And the Pew survey that came out that I continue to dwell on, as I mentioned, it does show Christianity is declining in America. But one of the things that I think is notable when you take it and the Barna survey together, the evangelical churches in the United States that are Bible-believing Orthodox churches that treat God's Word as inerrant and infallible are actually doing better than the mainline churches. Uh, It is, I think, safe to say at this point that the last Episcopalian has been born in the United States, given that church's decline. And the last uh, member of the PCUSA has probably been born, the, the liberal uh, Presbyterian mainline denomination. In fact, I, I learned the other day that RTS is an inerrant Bible-believing seminary. It's, it's where I've been going to school, Reformed Theological Seminary. It has more men enrolled for ministry at RTS than all PCUSA seminaries combined, which kind of shows you the trajectory of these mainline churches. Uh, And of course, there's some creep in the conservative churches on things like inerrancy and complementarianism and, and racial reconciliation. And there's some strong pushback. And sometimes I think the pushback by the, the very conservative folks who were friends of mine, Uh, do themselves more harm than good. They're not convincing anyone. They're just reaffirming for themselves, much like I'm afraid we see in civil discourse these days, people just reaffirming themselves, puffing up their chests instead of trying to woo people and influence people. 